Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on Chapter 18. Chapter 18 by Donald Hodge Pilgrims, Master We are the pilgrims, Master. We shall go always a little further. It may be beyond that last blue mountain barred with snow, across that angry or that glimmering sea. A quote by J. E. Flacker. As we dawdled along the south coast of Jamaica on the second night, I sat in the cockpit by the lifeless tiller, watching the friendly blinking of a lighthouse and wondering what the next day would bring. Another port, another land, new faces, what adventures would befall us in Jamaica, land of rum, bananas and cigars. It was our intention to call there for a few days only to glimpse a little of the island before turning south to Panama. Neither the approaching hurricane season nor our finances would allow us to linger in the Caribbean. As the dawn restored the black water to its clear blue-green colour, we stood close in to the shore. Brush-grown cliffs, gashed with stark whites of gypsum and severed by narrow, intriguing valleys, dropped steeply to the sea. A feather of smoke drifted from a sugar factory chimney, and in the distance, the serrated spine of the Blue Mountains faded into the morning haze. Insidiously, the breeze began to freshen, and soon content was snoring through the smooth water towards Kingston. The slight increase in motion produced some activity below, and shortly, Bill's head appeared out of the hatch. Have you got the Kingston chart? he demanded. No, it's below. Not there. I've searched the whole pile. Then Ern must have it. No, he hasn't seen it. And after a spirited argument as to who used the chart last, we decided that we had forgotten to order one. So we took up our usual positions for entering a strange port, Ernest at the helm, Bill tending sails, lead line and pilot guide, and myself aloft as lookout. Without a chart, the patchwork of reefs and caves in the approach was very confusing, and as we swept through a narrow channel between two caves, almost a wash, we marvelled at the skill of the old-time buccaneers in bringing their unwieldy craft through such a maze. A quick jibe, and we were in the smooth waters of the harbour. Scarcely was the hook down before the customs launch was ranging alongside, and the boarding officials being noisily resisted by Swizzle. We were anchored off the unimpressive collection of shacks and official buildings which is Port Royal, where all vessels must stop before proceeding to Kingston a few miles up the wide harbour. The wind was now blowing a generous 25 knots, so having cleared, we started the motor to avoid reefing and set off towards the channel boys. Crunch! Content came to an abrupt halt and heeled over on her side like a lame duck. Astonished, we looked about us. We were practically in the middle of the harbour and only a few yards from a buoy, but there was no doubt that we were well and truly aground. There was nothing to do but to catch her off, and after much sweating and profanity, the dinghy was launched and an anchor laid down to stern. We all tailed onto the line, swizzled too, and took a deep breath to start a chanty. The rope parted, and we collapsed in a heap on deck, swizz underneath. Exit swizzle to lick his wounds. Then help was seen approaching in the form of a small motor launch bearing the legend Port Royal Shipyards. A very English voice hailed us, and its fair-haired owner called across that he was a member of the same yacht club as we were, and would be glad to give us a tow. We speedily accepted and followed the launch to the shipyard of which our saviour, Commander Heather, was the manager. Commander Heather advised us to stay at Port Royal, 
offering as free berthing as the anchorage off Kingston was exposed and there was a possibility of thieving. After hearing of one unfortunate yachtsman who had had his complete boat stolen while he was in the city, we accepted the kind offer, and after making content shipshape, we went ashore to stretch our legs. Port Royal is connected with Kingston by road along the extensive sand spit known as the Palisados, which separates the harbour from the sea. It is much quicker to reach Kingston by boat, and the next day we stepped ashore from the shipyard launch. It was the first time for many months that we had visited a sizable city, and we were a little overpowered by the hooting, chattering traffic, the jostling, motley throng on the sidewalks, and by the dusty heat after the clean freshness of the open sea. We strolled up the main street, gazing into shop windows full of long, unobtainable goods, and eventually found the customs house, a building with an imposing facade, but a dingy rear. An outboard motor had been sent from England by Len, and during the nine months in which it had languished in a bonded warehouse, the red tape had built up round it to an alarming degree. Presenting a united front, we entered battle. Round one went to the clerk, behind the desk, who steadfastly refused to concede a single point. Round two was a stalemate. So were rounds three and four. Eventually, we won by a technical knockout through the kind intervention of a friend of a gentleman in the customs service. While working on the boat at Port Royal, making repairs to rigging, etc., we made a disturbing discovery. The two lower rudder pintles were entirely missing. Electrolytic action between the hull copper and the iron pintles was the reason. We had been aware of this danger and had installed zinc strips to take the brunt of the action, but an examination showed that they were completely decayed. This was serious, as content would have to be hauled out of the water for repairs, and we had no cash reserve for such an eventuality. However, Commander Heather came to the rescue once again by offering to put us on his marine railway for a very nominal price. We could save labour costs by doing all the work ourselves, but we could not make new fittings. We had a careful count of our assets and by the sacrifice of some precious US dollars decided that we could just about cover the costs. We were very anxious to have this work done as soon as possible and be out of the Caribbean before July brought the threat of hurricanes, but the marine railway was occupied by another boat. The days passed, but the other boats seemed no nearer completion, and we chafed at the delay. One morning, a large shiny automobile pulled into the yard, and a uniformed chauffeur climbed out, staggering under a huge basket of fruit. He came over to us and dumped the basket on our deck. From Mrs. Jackson, he said simply. Such was our introduction to the Jackson family. It appeared that they were the owners of a brand new catch, Nora May, that was lining astern of us, and later in the day we met them in person. They invited us to accompany them for a trial sail aboard their yacht, and if anything was needed to decide us, it was the sight of the three Jackson daughters making things shipshape on her decks. We downed tools and swarmed aboard. Mr. Jackson, a successful lawyer, had many friends in Kingston, and that day he seemed to have invited most of them aboard the Nora May. There was barely standing room on deck as we cast off and headed out to the harbour. It was a cheerful, vociferous party which eventually got sail on her, and the little yacht was soon smoking through the glittering water. There was mild panic amongst the crew as she felt the sea breeze and began to dip her lee rail. The bay was encrusted with dangerous reefs and there was no chart aboard, but no one troubled about such trifles. The Nora May pirouetted, zigzagged and executed hair-raising manoeuvres, while the girls handed round the cokes and Mr J beamed at everyone from the cockpit like a genial patriarch, occasionally tooting on the electric horn to add to the merriment. The Jacksons seemed to go out of their way to make our stay a pleasant one. 
One day they drove us to their summer cottage, 4,000 feet up in the Blue Mountains. Leaving the suffocating heat and dust of Kingston, we followed a road composed entirely of Z-bends and were soon winding through cool pine woods. As we went higher, Bracken began to make its appearance on the roadside and a scotch mist enveloped us. It was very still and quiet up there and once we heard the melodious piping of the solitaire, a rare Jamaican bird. On the way down, we stopped where the road balanced along the edge of a sheer cliff and looked down at Kingston, sprawled below us. My eye was caught by a new dam that was nearing completion to supply water for the town and its industries. Jamaica is rapidly expanding. Factories for the production of textiles, canned milk and butter and processed citrus fruits are supplementing the old established sugar, rum and banana industries. New hospitals and a university are under construction and the general impression is that of a go-ahead community. There is still, however, considerable unrest, chiefly because of the migration of peasants to the city where there are not enough jobs to go round. We were advised not to linger near the waterfront after dark. The Jamaicans are intensely interested in sports, particularly cricket. At the time of our visit, the test matches were being played in England and almost every shop or warehouse in the city had the scores chalked up on a board as the results came in over the radio. At length, the Marine Railway at Port Royal was vacated and with much shouting and arm-waving, Content was hauled out to dry land, where she sat in her cradle like a stranded whale. To Ernest, our resident engineer, fell the task of making drawings of the new fittings required, and the job was placed in the hands of a local machine shop. We had hopes of soon being on our way when the gallant Nora May suddenly sprang a leak and had to be rushed onto the marine railway. Content was ignominiously pushed back into the water, minus rudder. We fretted, chewed our fingernails and consulted for the hundredth time the chart showing hurricane occurrence and frequencies. The yacht yard was on the site of a former British naval base of the days when sail was giving way to steam and the huge careening anchors were still there. But the history of the port goes back much further than that. Its heyday was in the era of the buccaneers when reckless privateers preyed on homeward-bound Spanish merchantmen loaded with gains from the isthmus and when piracy and murder on the high seas was rife. Port Royal was the home port of such characters as Henry Morgan, Rackham, Blackbeard and their crews. Here they would return after a voyage and spend their ill-gotten gains on wine and women. For a brief period, Port Royal enjoyed an infamous prosperity. Then a series of disasters, fire, earthquakes and the signing of a treaty with Spain put an end to its gay life. During one of the earthquakes, part of the town was inundated by the sea and there is a legend that on a still day, if there be a heavy groundswell, one might faintly hear the tolling of the steeple bell beneath the waters of the bay. There are more tangible links with the pass than this though and we examined Morgan's huge beer mug equipped with a whistle in the handle which he blew when it required replenishing. Today Port Royal is only a memory and the collection of shacks and port offices is its tombstone. Eventually the machine shop in Kingston finished our new fittings. The Nora May came off the railway and Content took her place. Working feverishly with the help of some of the yard hands, we soon had the rudder in commission again and were ready to leave, except for the little matter of paying the bill. As seems to be inevitable with work done on a yacht, the sum was double our original estimate. Short of taking a job ashore for a while to raise cash, there was only one thing to be done. Pig lead is quite a valuable commodity and we were carrying some internal lead ballast around with us that we could well do without. So the last of our internal ballast went the same way as the rest, and we were freed from our debts. 
The financial situation now gave even more cause for concern than usual. A sum of money owed to us from England was not forthcoming, and it was doubtful whether we would be able to continue across the Pacific with our extremely thin resources. So we listened attentively to a suggestion from Commander Heather. He had worked in the United States for several years and outlined the possibilities of lecture tours there. Combined with our writing and photography, it seemed quite promising, and after all, we were all of us keen to see a little of the States. That same evening, we discussed the idea in the sweltering heat of our little saloon. We had no charts or pilots of the US coast. It would mean reaching Florida just as the hurricane season was beginning, and we had precisely $5 in cash. On the other hand, there were, we hoped, a few dollars waiting for us in New York, the proceeds of some photographs and articles, and unless we took jobs in Jamaica or Honduras, there was very little alternative. We took a deep breath and altered our destination by 5,000 miles to New York. One Sunday in July, we said our goodbyes and headed for the open sea with Miami, fabulous Miami, as our first port of call. The sea breeze was blowing at its usual 25 knots as we rounded Portland Point, and with a clean hull, Old Content showed us what she could do. By the next morning, we were off the western tip of the island, but completely becalmed. We had decided to follow a course round the western end of Cuba, and though this way the distance to Miami was some 200 miles further than if we had sailed via the Windward Passage between Haiti and Cuba, we hoped to carry fair currents the whole distance. Subsequent events proved that our choice had been correct. The old grey mare was goaded into action to take us out of the calm area in the lee of the island, and for the next few days we lolled along over a smooth indigo sea with only light airs to help us on our way. The great landmass of Cuba must have upset the trades and converted them into thunderstorms, for we experienced many of them. They came mostly at night, and for all their lightning and torrential showers, there was very little wind in them. Nevertheless, they were always treated with great respect, and twice we saw the ghostly glimmer of St. Elmo's fire at the truck as the lowering black clouds grumbled overhead. By day, our old friends the flying fish and porpoises played around us while we lazed on deck beneath an awning, and sometimes at night a noddy would fly out of the darkness and travel for a while perched on the stern rail. We passed between the Cayman Islands without sighting them, through flocks of seabirds indicating land not far away, and the pencil line on the chart slowly trickled westwards. At noon on the seventh day at sea, Ernest took the usual noon sight. Cape Corrientes is eight miles ahead, he announced confidently. I looked around in the rim of our little circle of sea. Nothing. Nothing but blue sea and sky and the drifting cottonwool clouds. I climbed the ratlins to the cross trees. There it was, a long, low pencil streak on the horizon just about eight miles away. With an ancient sexton and an extremely erratic timepiece, Ernest had made a perfect landfall. He was not surprised, perhaps a little justifiable pride, but I think he would have been surprised had the land not been Cape Corrientes. Personally, I'm still slightly incredulous when land turns up just where it should be after days at sea, simply through measuring a few angles of the sun, adding a few figures and directing the course accordingly. Of course, one may go through the process step by step and show logically that if time and sun altitude are correct, one must be where the answer says one is, but I'm still a little incredulous. It is fortunate then that there is visual proof of the observed position. Yes, there are landmarks at sea, albeit they will not pinpoint one's position, more nearly they will thumbprint it on a chart of the ocean. The colour of the water, the presence of different kinds of floating weed and of different marine life, the sighting of certain species of birds, 
the presence of a line of towering cumulus on the horizon, soundings, the temperature of the water, flotsam, overfalls, and in a wider sense, the tendency of wind and weather, all contribute evidence to confirm an observed position. We rounded Cape San Antonio, the extreme western tip of Cuba, under power. That night, the sea was like glass. There was no moon, and the stars were dimmed by the blazing phosphorescent bow wave. Faintly, from the land came the sweet scent of flowers. Once through the Yucatan Straits, we stood away from the shore to avoid a possible contrary current and began to look for the Gulf Stream. A day of squalls and scudding grey shapeless clouds went by when no sights were possible, but the next, the ninth, at sea, was clear. Ernest seemed to take a long time to check his calculations and then informed us somewhat apologetically that we were only 20 miles from the dry Tortugas. The currents must have been working overtime to put us in that position, and we viewed the chronometer with considerable suspicion. An hour later, the visual proof appeared. A deep-laden tanker came over the horizon and crossed our bows, heading east. Then another, and another, and a veritable procession of shipping began to come into view. Clearly, this was the eastbound shipping track round the Florida Keys. The Gulf Stream had given us 75 miles in one day. We altered course to confirm our position by a lighthouse marked on the chart. It duly appeared, and as we stood close by, the water suddenly changed to a milky green, and grey mats of floating yellow gulf weed surrounded us. To make quite certain, we approached close enough to read the name, Rebecca Shoal. Then as we could see the white sandy bottom beneath us, we stood into the stream again. The wind was now heading us, and all that night we tacked back and forth between the two shipping lanes that skirt the Florida Keys. By morning, there was a fresh easterly blowing and a very steep, lumpy sea running. Content regularly plunged her long bowsprit into the waves, cascading white water over her bows, and the motion became very uncomfortable. Indeed, it became so violent that the navigation lights on the shrouds filled with water and shreds of seaweed caught up in the stays as she wallowed and crashed eastward. Nobody appeared to want any breakfast, and Swizzle retired to his bad weather station in the bottom of the cockpit. Then, Bill put forward a sound suggestion. To hell with Miami, he said. Key West is only a few miles away. Let's go in there for a night's rest. Why had we not thought of that before? The suggestion was acted upon immediately, and we stood in to ascertain our exact position. The keys are fringed with dangerous reefs and shoals, and as our only chart was an out-of-date copy covering the whole east coast from Cuba to the Chesapeake, we had to exercise extreme caution. There was a thick haze limiting visibility to a couple of miles, but the line between the dark blue of deep water and the milky green over the shoals, as sharp as though drawn with a ruler, was our guide. After two false attempts, we found what we hoped was the right channel and began a long, hot, wet, salty beat to windward. Odd little groups of scrubby keys began to appear, and in the late afternoon, the white buildings and radio masts of Key West crystallised out of the haze. Thankfully, we slipped into the quiet waters of the harbour. The anchor cable rattled out and the halyard blocks creaked as the gaff was lowered to its chocks. Another 900 miles of blue water had slipped beneath our keel. Another passage was completed. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, 
and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.